Today's scripture reading is found in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 50. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 50. Shall all please stand for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you, truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is the reading of God's word. All may be seated. Well, good morning. It is such a joy and privilege to be here with you this morning. It's definitely not something I uh, take for granted. Before we get into the text, uh, I just wanted to convey our sincere thanks, uh, thanksgiving for you guys and your partnership with our uh, ministry in Albania. And uh, I actually have something that I want to pass along to you as a church. This is a wooden carving. It is in the shape of Albania. And on it, it says in Albanian, Kostu preus lemit e percharte jer na iliri kam kriir sherbimin e unjilit kristit. And that's from Romans 6, uh, 15 19. Yeah, you guys knew that. Uh, what that says is uh, Paul is saying so that from Jerusalem, and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Why is that on here? Well, two reasons. First, it references from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. 
Lirikum is the only reference in the Bible to modern-day Albania. Second, talks about fulfilling the ministry of the gospel of Christ. You guys, through your partnership, are helping us uh, fulfilling the gospel, uh, fulfilling the ministry of the gospel of Christ in modern-day Illyricum. So on the back here, it says, Dear Crossway, thank you for your faithful prayers and support for our ministry in Albania, in Christ uh, the Barretts. So I know that there's no physical church building. There's no physical office. So I will let, um, you know, your pastors figure out where to hang this and get creative. But please, this is just a small token of our love and appreciation for you guys and your uh, partnership. Well, as you probably could tell based on uh, Sam's reading, we are taking a pause from uh, the book of Revelation. Um, But we are not taking a pause from the Word of God, nor are we taking a pause from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So please open your Bibles uh, to the gospel of Luke. And uh, Sam read the the background and kind of the, uh, the surrounding passage to the main passage I will be focusing on this morning, which is in chapter 9, and it's specifically verses 46 to 50. Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 50. So let me just read those five verses that I will be focusing on this morning. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child And put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. So this morning, we're we're simply going to try to do two things. We're going to just walk through the context and the background of this passage. And then we're simply going to ask ourselves, so what? What does this passage mean to us today in southeast Wisconsin in 2021? So the background and, passage, uh, background and context of the passage, and then application. So let's, let's get into the, uh, into the passage. Uh, when we put this passage in its context, it's pretty obvious that we are no longer on the mountaintop. If you remember from Sam's reading, um, this, in the second half of, of chapter 9 of Luke, you'll, you'll remember that the immediate context of this passage is the transfiguration. And if we zoom out a little bit more, we can remember that we are no longer in Luke 2 and the account of the birth of Jesus. We're fully in Jesus' public ministry right now. In fact, we're probably a couple years into his public ministry. And these chapters, this, this passage is kind of the turning point from the couple years of public ministry up in Galilee to when he starts heading back to Jerusalem and starts the final phase of his public ministry. So the transfiguration just occurred, and it's clear that we are no longer on this mountaintop because this was a mountaintop experience for the disciples that were there. Instead, in today's passage, we, uh, we don't see the revelation of Christ's incomparable uh, worth and his greatness that's designed to capture and woo our souls. No, instead, what we see today and what we're confronted with is a different sort of revelation. It's, it's a uh, revelation not of Christ, but a revelation of what his disciples then and what his disciples now are really like. It's a revelation um, of wayward hearts filled with self-absorption, filled with self-interest, 
filled with pride, jockeying for positions of prestige and honor. It's a revelation of people who are desperately longing for other people to see our grandness. This is it's a sad and, and sordid affair. It's a, it's, it's a revelation that I feel like I see in myself. Maybe you do as well. Because this is part of what we find within us. So just a short while before, um, a couple of the disciples, along with Jesus, have been taken up into the cloud on the mountaintop, surrounded by the Shekinah glory of God, filled with who he is. Now they are filled with who they are. How quickly they descended from the heights of awe and worship and wonder to squabbling amongst themselves. And lest we be too hard to judge these disciples, let's look in the mirror, right? How many times at 1020 on a Sunday morning are you enraptured with God's glory, singing his praises, and then 45 minutes later you're squabbling with your spouse or your kids on the way back? We are no different than they are. And the problems they encountered with this issue of self-importance and pride is exactly the same one that we experience. Now, Luke is summarizing here. And if we look at the parallel account in Mark, chapter 9, we find a little bit of commentary and we get a clear understanding of the timeline. So, they had descended from the peaks of Mount Hermon at about 9,000 feet. Mount Hermon is is most likely where the transfiguration occurred. So, they're up at 9,000 feet. And they had come down to the town of Capernaum, which is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They had come to a house that had acted as the base of their operation for, for a pretty long time. Could have been Peter's house. In fact, the child that Jesus took and and put next to him could have been Peter's child. We don't know that, but it could have been. So along the way, from up at 9,000 feet down to Capernaum, um, they had found themselves embroiled in a lively conversation. Actually, it was an argument. It was a dispute, a verbal contention, a squabble. No doubt some were probably more aggressive than others. You can almost kind of hear the conversation, hear the argument. Maybe you can hear some of the accusations. Peter, the only reason you were on the mountain with Jesus was because he doesn't dare leave you alone. I mean, most likely, it was an ugly scene. Because pride is the sin that we cannot see in ourselves but we detest so much in others. In the parallel account uh, in Matthew, it's indicated that along the way they had been having, uh, along the way that they had been having this argument, they realized that they were not going to solve this issue on their own. So they came to Jesus and they wanted him to solve the question of who is the greatest among them. When you actually stop and think about that, the irony of that is just absolutely bizarre, right? They are coming to the one who had never once been arrogant, never once been proud, never once been demanding or self-absorbed. Never once. Their primary concern, here is disciples, the issue at hand was who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. That is what had preoccupied them. And it's interesting because clearly they understood something about the kingdom of God. That they had a special place in it. It, it, It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, there were a lot of things that they had not caught that Jesus had been trying to communicate to them. But they had gotten this idea that he was the Messiah who was going to come and establish the kingdom. He had called them by his grace and he had given them a role in that. And man, 
Were they excited about that? Of course, they didn't seem to understand the other things Jesus was saying about suffering, taking up your cross, dying to the world. But man, were they excited about their role in the kingdom. And, and, and this motivated them because they had visions of honor and power and prestige, a, spe- a special place in the work of God. That's what filled their mind. Now, the sad irony of this is that while Jesus was preoccupied with the shadow of the cross that had fallen on his path, his disciples were preoccupied with their own power and glory and visions of grandeur. And here, Jesus identifies a teaching moment. A teaching moment to confront them. To achieve maximum effect, Jesus picks the person with the lowest status, a child, in order to explain to them the true meaning of greatness. Now, different cultures have different views towards children. This is something that uh, our family experienced firsthand when we moved to Albania. Albania has a very different view towards children. In fact, they don't view it as an individualistic thing to raise children. It's really a matter for the whole society to raise children. So when we get on a bus to go to the other side of the capital city of uh, Tirana, where we live, uh, if the bus is full and there's no place to sit, it is not at all unusual for a teenage boy to pick up one of our kids, plop him on his lap, and interact with him. Can you imagine doing that here? There won't be ambulance chasing lawyers. It'd be like bus chasing lawyers to, to sue someone. Uh, it's not at all unusual to have there be uh, you know, a grandma in the street who is happy to tell you all the things you're doing wrong in terms of parenting. <laughs> Why does that child not have a coat? That child should have a coat. They're not meaning to rebuke you, but they see it as, a, as, as their role to help raise your children. So the view of children in the ancient world was very different than the view uh, today, the modern attitudes, whether in America or in Albania. And although ancient parents loved their children, within the social structure, children were at the very, very bottom of the rank, in rank. That children were cute and innocent was beside the point. Little children had no intrinsic exploitable value, no status, no rights, no power, no position, not even the ability to give back what had been given to them. They were weak, vulnerable, needy, and dependent. And from that point of view, little children were not worth much at all. And hence, they were relegated to the bottom rung of the social ladder. In fact, Interestingly, the Talmud, which is the primary source of Jewish religious law and theology, regards spending time with children to be a waste of time. In fact, one rabbi lists things that destroy a man. And in that list, he starts that list with morning sleep. Morning sleep destroys a man. Midday wine tarrying in places where common people assemble, dilly-dallying, and chattering with children. Keeping company with children added nothing to a man. In fact, later in Luke, in chapter 18, we see that the disciples considered Jesus too important to receive children and attempted to send them away. I mean, the disciples undoubtedly in line with their culture, thought that greatness is determined by the company one keeps. The great associate with the great and deal with matters of great significance. And children are not great, nor are they significant. So Peter, James, and John probably, you can imagine, they probably argued for their greatness based on their meeting with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And not just meeting with Jesus, but meeting with Moses and Elijah, right? This, this all has a connection. 
So Jesus puts the little child beside him, immediately elevating the status of, of this child to a position of honor next to the teacher. They, this probably would have aroused some sort of murmur of indignation from his disciples. And then in one sentence, Jesus draws a straight line from the child through himself to God. He says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now, it's probably helpful here to understand how the verb receive is used. The act of receiving someone must be understood in the context of ancient Near Eastern hospitality because it means to welcome as family, to care for one's needs, to serve. Given the incomparable status of God and Jesus in the minds of the disciples, how can serving a lowly child be commensurate with serving God and Jesus? Welcoming welcoming children in the name of Jesus requires lowering oneself in more ways than one. Lowering oneself physically, but also perhaps in status. But that's... That's precisely Jesus' point, right? Because he says, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Because in the economy of God's kingdom, greatness is measured by service and greatness is hidden in humility and lowliness. Jesus was not saying that his that his disciples or anyone else would find him through being nice to children. What he was saying was that how they related to a child, and and by implication all those who are lowly, would indicate whether they were related to him and to God the Father. The one who is greatest among Jesus' disciples is not the one who who can boast of being the uh, boast of greatness or uh, the one who has the most prominent relationships. No, the one who is greatest, the disciple who is greatest, is the one who is prepared to identify with the lowly, to receive them, and to minister Christ's kindness to them. Now we move on to the second little incident, second little scene or or vignette. And this one reveals that John was probably at least beginning to understand the Lord's message. In light of Jesus' uh, warning in verse 48, John wondered whether the apostles had acted properly in an earlier incident and probably feeling some guilt decided to ask Jesus about it. Master, we, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. Since this incident isn't recorded in the Gospels, the identity of this man is, is uh, not known. But it's clear that he was no phony exorcist since he was successfully casting out demons in Christ's name. That is, consistent with Christ's authority and uh, power. Whoever he was, the apostles, pridefully jealous of their exclusive position, tried to prevent him from carrying on his ministry. Why? Well, the answer is given in verse 49. Because he does not follow with us. Their opposition boils down to one fact. He was not in their clique. He was not in their group or their little tribe. So they tried to shut him down. And significantly, the sin here has the same root as the preceding sin, right? It's it's the sin of pride and self-importance. It's the sinful pride about being privileged disciples. It's that seductive sin of self-importance and pride. They considered exorcism to be their exclusive ministry. Jesus' answer to John was both a prohibition, do not stop him, and a principle, for whoever is not against you is for you. 
He desires his followers to have an open heart, not an exclusive heart. And we see this open heart on display throughout the Bible. So when, in the Old Testament, when Joshua rushed to Moses to warn him that some elders named Eldad and Medad were preaching and thus stealing some of Moses' prominence, Moses gave a reply that displayed an open heart, not an exclusive heart. In Numbers 11, we read, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. While in prison in Rome, Paul learned that rival preachers were seizing the opportunity for self-promotion. His response? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Or consider Jonathan. Next in line to be king, at least according to human reason, but who, as we read in 1 Samuel, made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And so he committed his life to making David king. Or John the Baptist, right, who responded to Jesus' ascendance by saying, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. He must become greater. I must become less. To put aside personal hopes for success and to surrender to God's plan. And what a great way that is to be able to worship and to obey, to serve. And ultimately, it's the path to freedom. So, so what? (laughs) How does this passage apply to us today in the 21st century? And so I simply have three questions I would encourage you to think about this week, today, this week, individually, with, with your family, with others. These three questions are meant to help us to try to apply this passage. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read the three questions and then we'll take them one at a time. Question number one, how does the sin of self-importance and pride reveal itself in your life? Question two, where does your hope against self-importance and pride lie? Third question, how is humility demonstrated in your life? So let's start with the first one. How does the sin of self-importance and pride reveal itself in your life? Sometimes I, I think that in the church, we are increasingly embarrassed to reveal to others that we're sinners and that we struggle with sin. Christians who are embarrassed about the reality of sin lose their ability to explain ultimately what's wrong with the world and thus exactly what the good news of Jesus Christ announces. I ran across a a quote that I felt like really hit the nail on the head. The quote is, to ignore, euphemize, or otherwise mute the lethal reality of sin is to cut out the nerve of the gospel. For the sober truth is that without a full disclosure of sin... The gospel of grace becomes impertinent, unnecessary, unnecessary, and finally, uninteresting. When we ignore talking about sin, we undermine our ability to see sinners as redeemable and, more importantly, underestimate the transforming power of grace. So, let me ask you again. How does the sin of self-importance and pride reveal itself in your life? If you're still having difficulty answering that question, uh, let me ask a few additional questions that might help you. How do you see yourself as compared to others? Because pride and self-importance cause you to think about yourself 
as superior and ranking others lower in some sort of arbitrary fashion. The the apostles in today's passage are like those of whom Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. So how do you see yourself as compared to others? Another prompting question. How do you get things done? Because pride drives people to exalt themselves, push their agendas, and fulfill their ambitions and receive praise from others. Because pride gives rise to ungodly ambition. Because you believe that you are most qualified. And the idea of someone else being preferred over you is an insult to your perceived worth. Pride gives rise to boasting. Because everyone should know that uh, who you are and what you have accomplished. Pride gives rise, rise to contention. Because in picking fights, you feel a sense of superiority over those who may or may not be in error. Pride gives rise to a judgmental attitude. Because you believe the errors of others are much more serious than your own. As I was trying to think about a a way to personify pride, one thing came to mind. In my mind, pride is personified by Albanian driving. And because I'm a lawyer, I feel like I have to give two disclaimers to that. The first disclaimer is, listen, we love the Albanian people, right? We have given our lives to not physically, but to move there, and we love, love, love them dearly. Second disclaimer, I think, is probably more important. I myself, as many of you know, drive like an Albanian, so I am not judging them. Why is Dan the only one chuckling? (laughs) Maybe he's the only one who's been in the car with me and experienced that. So Albanian driving personifies the sin of self-importance and pride. Why? Because if there is an intersection, you just go barreling through it. You don't even look at others. Why? Because you are more important than others. Parking spots? (laughs) I can create my own parking spot. (laughs) Truly. I'm I'm, I'm not exaggerating here. (laughs) A left turn lane, a protected left turn lane, how cute, how quaint. I'm going to create my own second turn lane, left turn lane, next to yours, because there are four four cars in that left turn lane, and I want to be first, because I am more important than the rest of you. (laughs) I love that driving. (laughs) But it really does represent this idea of self-importance and pride. Many people ask, does Albania have a monarchy? No, but there are many kings and queens of the road, right? Do you have destroyed relationships in your life? Right, because pride ruins unity by destroying relationships. Relationships are based on loving sacrifice and service on selfless deferring to to, and giving to others. In fact, in Albanian, the word for relationship is mardonja. Why do I say that? Mardonja literally is two words put together. The word give and the word take put together. Actually, it's the word take and the word give put together. I mean, how beautiful of a representation of relationship is that? Pride, being self-focused, is indifferent to others. And beyond that, it's, it's ultimately judgmental, it's critical, and it's divisive. And because of that, pride is the most common destroyer of both relationships and churches. It plagued the Corinthian church, causing Paul to ask, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you, not, are you not walking like mere men? Nothing comes more naturally to fallen human beings than pride, manifesting itself in self-centeredness, self-love, self-promotion. Pride is the defining sin of fallen human nature, and it's a soil in which many other sins sprout, take root, 
and grow. The sobering truth is that, as Proverbs states, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished, since a proud heart is sin. So, let me move to the second question. Where does your hope against self-importance and pride lie? And I ask this question because there is hope for the proud heart. And it lies in the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the incarnation of humility. Emmanuel, God with us, condescended to live among us, die for us, and raise us to new life. He never had a shred of sinful pride, no fear, no entitlement, no ingratitude, no people-pleasing, no hypocrisy. The God-man emptied himself of all he deserved to save us from all that we deserve. He who was entitled to the highest honor forfeited it for our eternal good. Because of his humility, we can be forgiven of our pride. And although the power of pride is broken at conversion, when the repentant sinner approaches God with what the Old Testament calls a a broken and contrite heart, we do know that it's by no means permanently defeated, right? We experience that on a daily basis. So sanctification, this process, uh, uh, this progressive process of the triumph, in this case of humility over pride, is the power of the Holy Spirit. And that pride is not easily defeated. And this is evidenced from the experience, in fact, of the disciples in today's passage. Because even after the Lord confronted their pride in today's passage, it continued to surface even in the most shocking and unlikely of circumstances. In fact, at the Lord's Supper, just after the Lord had made his dramatic announcement that one of them would betray him, the apostles, as we read in Luke 22, began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And then incredibly, the discussion degenerated into a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. The same selfish argument that prompted the Lord's teaching on this occasion. Jesus, in today's passage, makes it clear that true greatness in the kingdom of God is the absolute antithesis, the opposite, of pride and exclusivity. Yet why is it that Many churchgoers, and indeed many Christians, do not know this. Why is it that in some corners of organized Christianity, the church simply does not believe Jesus' words? Why are things so upside down sometimes? Well, and perhaps some of you have uh, have heard this analogy, but let's consider the difference between dogs and cats. Right? The master pets the dog, and the dog wags its tail and thinks, oh, you must be God. You love me. Right? And then the, pa- the master pets the cat, and the cat purrs, shuts its eyes, and thinks, oh, you love me. I must be God. After God had graciously reached down to us, there's this perverse human tendency to think like the cat. Right? Think about it. As, as Christians, we began well as humble, needy sinners who received the free grace and mercy of God. And like the dog, God was everything to us. And we gladly worshipped him. But as time went by, this regrettable cat-like thinking began to shrink the recognition of grace in our hearts. But Christian life produced some, some positive change within us, no doubt. Maybe we became kinder people. Maybe uh, our language changed. Maybe certain destructive sins and habits disappeared. But those changes in themselves actually became a source of pride 
in our life. We might not actually think, I must be God, but maybe we silently imagine, I must be pretty good. We become proud of our apparent sanctification, our knowledge of the Bible, our evangelical routines. And this, con- this condition is typically pretty interior, right? But it has a telltale aroma. It has a, a stench that others can smell, especially those outside the church. Sometimes it's this, this acrid air of condescension or maybe a subtle smiling hostility or just an aloofness. Maybe it's a clubbish exclusivity or doubt about God's blessing and all those who are not in the approved circle. This stench has kept multitudes away from the church and more importantly, kept them away from a knowledge of Christ. Believer, may the gospel of Jesus Christ be the source and the power of our hope against self-importance and pride. It's, it's difficult for the person who understands God's grace to be prideful. Because pride is taking credit for what God has done. And to know that all we have is a gift, all we experience and enjoy is an expression of God's goodness and not ours. To know that everything in our possession, especially our salvation, comes from the hand of God is to take first step in defeating and dethroning pride from our hearts. So, that second question was, where does your hope against self-importance and pride lie? I hope it's clear that the answer should be the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last application question How is humility demonstrating itself in your life? In the economy of God's kingdom, greatness is is measured by service and is hidden in humility and lowliness. We read, For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. How is humility demonstrating itself in your life? You know, one great way to do this is by caring for the weak members of society. Are you doing this? Are we doing this as a church? I've noticed that some Christians do not know any insignificant or weak members of society, much less have a relationship with them. If all or nearly all of our friends are the great, the well-off, the educated, the accomplished, the comfortable, I'm not so sure we are being the men and women our master wants us to be. Are we reaching out to those, um, to those who are least in our society? Are we reaching out to and serving the poor, the immigrant, the mentally disabled, the ex-offender, on and on and on the list goes. Sometimes I think that Many of us are actually the ones uh, who are weak. Now, God has given Disciples Church, this church in Albania that we are part of, a wonderful opportunity to do this by his grace. Shortly after the pandemic, uh, it became very clear that in the neighborhood that we live, in the neighborhood uh, that our church is located in the capital city of Albania, uh, that the pandemic was wreaking havoc economically. The average salary, monthly salary in Albania is about $500. Many people have difficulty getting food on their table in in a normal situation. The pandemic with the closures of the economy wreaked havoc. And we noticed that there are many people, usually the least of these, who were simply not able to put food on the table. So through the gracious support of of, um, many Uh, Christians in the States, um, we were able to start a project, which we've called Project James, based on James 127, where we are providing ongoing food for many people in our neighborhood. This has given us an opportunity to to not only serve, but to proclaim, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will share a little bit more about this uh, tonight, But, but my prayer 
is that you would pray for ongoing opportunities to care for the weakest members of our community if you don't already have those opportunities. How is humility demonstrating itself in your life? Is humility being demonstrated in your life through unity? Or are we demonstrating the tribalism and exclusivity of the disciples in today's passage? Because remember the disciples' opposition to the ministry of the man who had cast out demons? Do you remember why they opposed him? Their opposition boiled down to one fact. He was not in their clique. He was not in their group or their little tribe. So they tried to shut him down. They raised their group above the mission itself. And that, friends, is tribalism, not Christian ministry. And you know, we have a lot of ways of being tribal, don't we? Black versus white, male versus female, reformed versus Arminian, young versus old, suburban versus urban, rich versus middle class versus poor, Republican versus Democrat, bears, packers, right? We could go on. And we even combine some of these to make smaller little tribes, right? Someone might say, I am a black, male, reformed, urban Democrat. We place ourselves in social cliques and act as if no one outside that clique really knows God or really is faithful to do God's work. And the main thing becomes whether others are with us rather than whether they are with Jesus. That's crazy. And don't get me wrong, please, before you run me out, don't get me wrong. There are good and necessary distinctions to be made. There is such a thing as truth and falsehood, good and evil, the true gospel and false gospels. Right? And regarding those things, we do not hesitate to draw and defend lines. But tribalism occurs among people who all name Christ as Lord and believe in the same gospel. You know, I've particularly noticed this um, over the last four and a half years of being in Albania. Albania is a country where less than half a percent of the population are believers. A country that less than 30 years ago, was still a communist state, an officially atheistic state, and where there were less than 12 known believers. It's a country where today, if someone else is proclaiming Christ's death on the cross, you link arms with them. Because we don't have the luxury of creating small little cliques. Now, unfortunately, there are many, many, many small <laughs> cliques within the evangelical church, but we don't have the luxury of doing that. Because someone is not with us, we are not with them. And that attitude is to our shame. The Lord checks our tribal attitudes and demands an attitude of cooperation. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. If a person isn't against you in God's work, but is doing God's work, then that person is for you. But actually, Jesus' words are a double-edged sword, right? We may be comfortable saying, if they are not against us, then they are for us, right? As long as we assume that we are the standard and others have to come to us. But can we embrace the statement in the other direction? Can we joyfully conclude, if we are not against them, then we are for them? If we cannot, then tribalism probably remains in our hearts and will likely get in the way of seeing the work of God being done in others. And that would be a tragedy. So, brothers and sisters, my prayer this week for you is that you would continue to meditate on this passage, and continue to be attuned to what God is saying to you through it. I would urge you to uh, discuss this with others, maybe in your small group, maybe uh, with your significant other, maybe with your children. 
How does the sin of self-importance and pride reveal itself in your life? Where does your hope against self-importance and pride lie? How is humility demonstrating itself in your life? As we transition from the preaching of the gospel to partaking uh, in the gospel through the Lord's Supper, what we're really doing is proclaiming Jesus' victory over sin and death. We are proclaiming the hope we have, not just against the sin of self-importance and pride, but the hope we have against sin, broadly, every sin. Because our hope against sin lies not in our feeble attempts and, and efforts to try harder. Our hope against sin does not lie in some magic formula or some checklist. Our hope against sin does not lie in doing. No, our hope against sin lies in Jesus' atoning work on the cross for our sins. Our hope lies on God laying the sin of sinners on his only Son, Jesus, who, for his part, willingly bore the righteous wrath of God against sin as the substitute for all who would believe in him. Because when we proclaim Christ's death, we proclaim Christ's death when we eat the bread and we drink the cup. Because in the breaking of the bread, we have a visual representation of the breaking of our Savior's body by the nails that pierced his hands and by the sword that pierced his side. And the wine poured into the cup depicts the blood that poured from his wounds as he died on the cross. If you have placed your faith in God and have a relationship with him, we invite you to partake in the Lord's Supper. If, however, you have not done so yet, or you're actively living in, re in rebellion against them, we would ask that you not partake. In uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 23, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and 24, we read, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he, when he had given thanks... He broke it, and he said, this 